All right. Well, thank you all so much uh, again for joining us. And Faith, thank you for leading us in worship. And uh, Dan, we're so glad to have you back. So it's good to see your face as well. Um, we want to jump into our sermon today as we are just continuing our series through the book of Colossians. And we are looking at um, just the idea of home shows where your heart is. So we hear the phrase, home is where the heart is. Well, when it comes to our relationship with God and how our relationship with God impacts our family, uh, what we're going to talk about today is how home shows where your heart is. So will you join me in a word of prayer as we get started today? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you uh, for the fact that we know that we can build our lives upon your love, for it is a firm foundation. And so, God, we put our trust in you. Father, we thank you so much for each person that is watching online, uh, whether this is their very first time, whether they've been a part of our church for years, God, I pray that everyone who hears my voice, uh, Lord, would know how much you love them. God, I pray as we dive into your word that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. We love you, Lord, and it's in your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 18, and then we'll end uh, in chapter 4, verse 1. And so um, as you're turning there, um, there's going to be um, notes for you on the top of the screen. Um, there's going to be the tab there that says sermon notes. And you'll notice if you're using the sermon notes that uh, we have basically two, it's, it's like a table with two columns in there. We're going to compare two different types of homes, a traditional home uh, looking at the, um, the Greco-Roman standards and then a Christian home and how, how that compares. But what I want to do is, is just kind of start off with, you know, we've, uh, a lot of us have been spending lots of time in our home. And as you can see, I've been sharing the message from my home to your home. And it's so great to be able to still be able to connect. And there's something beautiful about when you're able to go into someone's home and to break bread with one another and, and to talk and have conversation and, and connect. And so just the the beauty that comes from being able to know one another well enough to go into the home and do life together. And so um, as we think about that, there are times when you could just go into a home and it just uh, radiates just generosity and hospitality and warmth. And you know what it's like. Maybe it's um, just how friendly people are. Maybe there's just you could see everything was um, nice and there's, it smells good because, you know, that's important. Um, whatever it is, but it's just the love that people have. It's this warmth. Uh, that comes. And other times you know that you can walk into a home and it may look nice, the, the appearance may look good, there may be a candle, there may be everything clean and tidy, but there's just a sense um, or, or there's a general unease or a general um, moment of feeling, okay, something feels a little off, that there must be tension or, or it's different. That when we are able to welcome people into our homes, um, that is such a tangible, practical, and powerful way for us to share what God has done in our lives. But a lot of us have been spending extra time in our homes. And for some, like I'm a homebody, Steph and I, we, we love being home. And so uh, for the first several weeks of being um, sheltering in place, it was, it was nice to be able to be home and to spend extra time. But even as much as you love being home, it's nice to have the rhythm to, to be able to go out and go to work or to have certain places to go to. Um, some of you are extroverts, and so the idea of being at home for this amount of time has been uh, difficult, and you just, you know, you, you want to go talk, and Zoom isn't enough, and I get that. But what I want to talk about is, again, the impact of the home, because as we've been staying home, there's, there's some figures or there's some um, different ideas that are happening that um, during the coronavirus, different problems that have risen up within homes. 
Specifically, uh, there's some estimates from the United Nations Population Fund that through three months of quarantine that will result in a 20% rise in intimate partner violence or domestic violence um, throughout the world. That's not a national statistic. That's 20% rise of um, internet, excuse me, intimate partner violence or domestic violence within the home through this quarantine. They talk about how uh, that there will be at least potentially up to 15 million cases of that. That the the, melt, the, um, the mixing of having the lockdowns, having isolation, having stress, um, having economic anxiety and joblessness and um, alcohol sales have jumped and all these different things that all of those become a concoction in which domestic violence worldwide um, is expected to rise and has risen. And so that's really hard for us to think about the, the impact of the home. But we also see the flip side, not the flip side, but an additional statistic is that, is the fact that child abuse um, and child abuse cases have actually decreased by up to 50%. And initially that might sound encouraging because it thinks, okay, yes, there's, there are fewer cases of child abuse. But in reality, um, that's a number that is, is scary for um, uh, child protective services and, and doctors and nurses because what it implies is that often the abuse happens in the home and the abuse for children is often most seen by teachers at school, by coaches, by um, counselors, um, by anyone who's a mandated reporter and kids aren't able to be outside of the house so the calls have decreased but the actual instances um, have not. And so you start to think about the impact that being home all the time has and how you can walk into a home and it can be warm, you can walk into a home and it can be difficult, you know there's tension. Well again, if we see, hear the phrase that home is where the heart is, our sermon today is how home shows where your heart is, where my heart is, because of how Jesus impacts our lives through our home. And so the main point for today, if you're following along, is that if Jesus has made his home in your heart, there will be a change in your heart towards your home. If Jesus has made a change in your heart, there will be a change in your heart towards your home. We cannot live or, or have the same kind of relationship. Our homes should look so distinctly different as Christ followers um, to those who don't. Now, does that mean that people who don't follow Jesus always have bad homes and abuse? Not at all. I'm not at all saying that. What I am saying is that Christians, we are called to live so differently and not just um, this word of eye service, not just this idea of how, what other people see on the outside. And we put on a face, we put on a mask, we, we show up to church um, on Sunday mornings and, and we act like everything's okay, but our families know when things are not okay. So we're not just doing this for eye service, for others to approve of us. It's this idea of the people in our home are transformed because Christ has transformed us. And so we're going to be looking, again, Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18, but before we get to the text today, I, I need to take a few moments to be able to describe the traditional home in the Greco-Roman household. So around the Greek and Roman time, so Greco-Roman, and uh, they have these household codes that it was a specific um, uh, idea of how households should run based off of the time there. So the Greco-Roman household codes, and one of them is uh, Aristotle specifically talks about the three parts of a household, and he goes, says this, the smallest and primary parts of the household are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. 
And in fact, Aristotle spends um, a lot of time in his writings, Politics, um, in section three, he talks a lot about the importance of free men being able to rule over their wives, to rule over their children, to rule over their slaves. And we see that um, Philo and Josephus, who are other um, historians at the time, also have these household codes that they write down about the importance of a man's authority just to um, lord over his authority over his household, over his wife and his kids and slaves at the time. And so this is why when I've looked at this before, or when others have, uh, I've heard other sermons about this section we're about to talk about, when it hits on the idea of slaves and masters, you know, they kind of equate it to um, employees and employers. They, they, they try to say, okay, view how you're working as a slave, view that as an employee. And if you're an employer over someone, a supervisor, a boss, a leader, view the idea of how um, masters are told to be. And, and there's, I mean, you could take some truth from that and we could look at that, but you know, the context that we're seeing, especially in light of what Aristotle said and Philo and Josephus, talks about the importance of saying that um, households in, uh, encapsulated those three different relationships, including master and slaves. And so it's one of those where that was something that we, we keep that under the household theme. And again, we're gonna hit on this later, but I just wanna start right off the bat that um, our nation has um, such a, um, deplorable and difficult history with slavery. Um, and so I want to be clear right off the bat that the Bible isn't condoning slavery. It's not giving people the right to own slaves. In fact, uh, this section, this idea of the household codes and this passage we're going to go through, that in the Civil War, there were people from the South who were saying, well, the Bible says that that means that we can have slaves because look at it. But what the, what the word is saying and what we're going to unpack here is that Paul in this section isn't talking about how it's okay for all people to have slaves for all of time. By no means is that. In fact, we just talked about a few weeks ago how there's no division in, in the body of Christ. Colossians 3.12, there is no slave or free or Scythian or barbarian. We talked about all of these divisions. And so he's not going to say that in verse 12 and then completely turn course by verse 22, 23. But what it's saying is he's speaking in to the culture to a specific moment. And so I would be remiss and it would be um, irresponsible for me to kind of gloss over our nation's history of slavery. And, and especially in light of everything going on, it's something where um, we need to lean into sections that seem difficult in the Bible and we turn to God in it and we wrestle with it and we see what the heart is behind it. And we know that in Isaiah 61, when Jesus talked about why he came, or sorry, when, the, when Isaiah prophesied and then Jesus referred to it in Luke. But in that moment, he talks about one of the things is to come and set the captives free. That slavery is something that we reject, something that is that's horrible. And it's sad to hear that even a few years ago, there were more slaves in the world, over 27 million slaves or people in human trafficking in the world. And it's the greatest number there had been throughout all of history. So this is not just a past thing, but it's something that we need to be able to um, address and recognize that he, Paul is talking to the specific codes, to a Greco-Roman context, and we can learn from it, but it's not something where he's excusing it, condoning it, approving of slavery uh, for all of time. So I just need to make sure that that is uh, hopefully crystal clear. But in order to keep moving on, um, we're gonna compare inside your two tables on your notes on the left-hand side, talks about the traditional home. So the traditional home, the first point in there is that the traditional home was a home 
or was one of hierarchy. That hierarchy was one of the most important things there. As we alluded to earlier, the Greco-Roman idea was that wives, children, and slaves had to obey the husband, had to obey him without question, that he had complete control and he had the ability to, to make um, these autocratic or these, these huge decisions. And so it was all about hierarchy, that women were, were to obey, wives were to obey, because the husband was the right one no matter what, that kids were to obey the father, because if not, then he could hurt them into submission, um, to make them submit that slaves had to obey, and it was looked at as the man was the center of that home. So again, this is speaking to that culture. The traditional one was one of hierarchy. The second note in there is that in the traditional home, the husband got what he wanted, and it was his way or the highway. And we've heard that before, and, and um, it's something where what he wanted to happen was what would happen. Again, he had the ability, and and had the, um, the right within the Roman law to be able to um, harm or beat or hurt family members that went outside of his will. That it was um, a culture, and we have many cultures here today that talk about honor and shame cultures. That we in America, our culture is much more um, uh, innocence versus guilt culture in the sense of if you sin, if there's a sin in America, it's an individual sin. It impacts the individual. And, and yes, it could harm other people, but it's an individual wrong against God and we can receive innocent, or we are either in, we're guilty of it and then we receive innocence. So when we talk about Jesus, we, we talk so often about taking away our guilt, taking away our pain, right? Well, in honor cultures, it's this comparison between honor and shame. It's not about the individual. It's if an individual were to sin, it would bring shame on the family. And so there would be this dynamic in which in many cultures um, around the world still today and in the past, that if a family member, a, a wife, um, a child, a slave in our context, a wife, child, if, that were, if they were to break um, what the father didn't want to have happen, if they were to go against the father's will, that he could hurt them, he could judge them, and in some cases, there are such things in which he could kill them. That we still see today that there are cultures in which honor killings, killings in which because a family member brought shame as opposed to honor, it was up to the honor of the family member, especially the head of the household, the man of the house, to, um, to rectify that shame, even if it meant um, bringing death upon him. And this happens if um, a child does not want to go into a marriage um, that's been arranged. This happens um, if there's any uh, sexual relationships before uh, marriage. This can happen uh, for myriad different reasons. And it's so heartbreaking, but that was the culture. That's who we're speaking to now. And that's the honor culture that if you bring shame, honor must be held up. And so husbands were able to lord over their wives, their children, their slaves in this time. And if anything was dishonored and brought shame, he would do that. So the husband got what he wanted. He was, he was his way, um, whatever he wanted, when he wanted. The husband was the center of the house, which, uh, which brings us to the next point as we we're going through them. And the traditional home saw the husband as Lord and master, the one who's in charge, the one who determines what's right and wrong, the one who says what you can or cannot do. Um, Rachel Held Evans wrote this. She said, the familiar, familial excuse me, 
familial structure referenced in the household codes, again, that's what we're looking at now, was that of pater familias, which means father of the family, which positioned the man as the ruler and authority over an economic familial unit, which consists of the ruling patriarch, his wife, children, and slaves. Again, this idea that he was the pater familias, the head of the household, the father of the household, um, and he was able to just automatically decide what's right. And in some cases, this went even for those children. We often think of you know, um, having children uh, submit and having children obey. This is something that wasn't just for kids as they were growing up in the home, but this was a family unit. So this was family that extended family all lived within one another. And the father, the, the head of the household, the Lord Master Pater Familias, he was able to have the reign to s tell his grown children what to do. And his grown children would have to submit. His grown children would have to be at risk of receiving, um, if they cause shame, that they would then have to experience those beatings or those um, forced submissions. And so, again, this is something that he had this autocratic, automatic, culturally given, but not God-ordained lording over lording over of the family. And again, this is the Greco-Roman, and that's a very brief uh, one, but you can type in Greco-Roman household codes, um, and you can find out more information about those. And, uh, but I want to hit on those three relationships, because even if Aristotle talks about those are important, and then as we turn to our scripture today, we see that those are the ones that Paul specifically references when he talks about the Christian home. And so Paul, in this passage, as well as in Ephesians 5, um, he starts to look at, um, he's not giving new rules for Christian homes. And in fact, Peter, um, in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, he, he gives a very similar context. And so we may look at it with our cultural eyes and think, okay, so they're saying that, you know, husband has to, um, basically that the wife submits to the husband, husband love your wives, that these were things that um, kind of made up out of nowhere. But what it's in fact happening is how they're taking the Greco-Roman understanding of household codes. And they're saying, listen, if Jesus has made a change in your heart, then there will be a change in your heart towards your home. And so with that being said, he, he, they start to re-envision what it looks like when Jesus is the center of the house, not the man, not the husband or the dad. So uh, I'm going to read, starting in Colossians 3, verse 18, and we're going to read just the whole section all at once, and then we'll come back and refer to passages or scriptures a little bit. But Colossians 3, starting in verse 18, says this, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So as we look again through those three different relationships uh, that was talked about through Aristotle, those are the three relationships that Paul talks about here and the three relationships that he talks about in Ephesians 5 and Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3. So I know I mentioned this earlier, but um, I need to just reiterate it that Louis Giglio talks about this. He says that the scripture isn't condoning anything about culture. 
Rather, the scripture is speaking the transforming power of a relationship with Jesus into the culture. That if there was only one right culture throughout all of time, then we wouldn't see how every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people group will be able to praise God in heaven at the end. That God is speaking through his word, through the scriptures, to a specific culture. But through the power of Jesus, the rules of that culture are now changed. And that we see the power of what Christ can do. So instead of the traditional home being one of hierarchy, we see here in your notes that the Christian home ought to be one of humility. It ought to be one of humility. We talked about humility last week, that humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, as C.S. Lewis said. We talked about how Jesus had the attitude of, or excuse me, we ought to have the attitude of Jesus by um, putting others' needs above our own and considering others above ourselves. And so when we hear the word submit in our culture, with our context, and you hear verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands, uh, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. We think what often comes to mind is just this complete obedience that, that kind of goes back to the idea of what the Greco-Roman household was, this idea that of utter obedience. We, we picture it as um, demeaning women. We picture it as being um, uh, like a doormat that is, deserves to be walked on, which is not at all what is meant to be. That Matthew Henry talks about um, in his commentary that woman was created from the rib of the man, not from the head to lord over him, not from the, the foot to be trampled upon him, but from his rib so that a woman could come under the protection of a man and could be close to his heart. See, this is not something that is, this is a softer word. When Paul uses the word submit, our context sounds harsh. In his context, that is a softer word than utter and complete obedience. It's saying, submit yourself. And it pictures this idea of um, falling in line with the, with the proper order. So in Ephesians 5 passage, verse 21 talks about how we ought to submit to one another. But then it talks about, in Christ, and then it talks about how wives submit to your husbands. And it talks about how, you know, the, for the husband is the head of the wife in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. And so we hear that and we think, oh man, that's really hard because it's women have to submit, wives have to submit. But when you look at it, it's saying, hey, God has created it so that husbands would be the heads of the household, but that their head, their master, their patrofamilias would not be themselves. It would be Christ. And so when a husband is willingly, lovingly pursuing and following Jesus, then it makes it more available and a wife is more open to um, submitting because she knows that she's just following someone who's following Christ. And, and we see here, it's this picture of following the, the proper order of things. Um, my previous pastor talked about how it's the idea of yielding to someone. And that's specifically referenced, uh, we've talked about it before, but specifically the idea of when uh, someone's merging onto the freeway. And we've all been in the closest lane, and we've all had people on an on-ramp trying to merge, and they don't, you know, they, they, they try to go in front of us and they try to speed in and cut us off and then often have to break because there's someone in front of them. And so it, it upsets us. Why? Because we had the right of way that we, there's a, a specific order that you just kind of go in and you kind of follow along and you yield to one another. And so we get frustrated when that happens. And so this idea here is, is this idea of submitting is 
following the order that, yes, God has placed man as head of the household and we'll get to his responsibilities. This, husbands, we don't get off easy by any stretch of the imagination. Wives are called to submit, but as we look in a few moments, husbands are called to, to a lot in order to embody who Christ is. That is no easy task. But when a husband does those things, then a wife knows that she could follow his lead as he's being led by Christ. And that's a beautiful, symbiotic, beautiful relationship. Because when it comes to humility, when we submit to one another, it means that we're putting others above ourselves. Because that's the order that Jesus did. He could have stayed in heaven, and he could have just been fine uh, being there with God and the Holy Spirit and angels. And, but he realized that in order for us to have a right relationship with God the Father, that he had to submit to the will of the Father. He had to come down and to save us from our sins by living a perfect life, dying a horrible death, raising to new life, and inviting us to experience new life within his kingdom and right relationship with him as Lord and Savior. So we see that he set the tone for humility, and that's who we are called to follow. By putting others' needs above himself, we ought to put others' needs above our own, no matter where we are in the family structure. Because when we look at the verses 18, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. As we look at verse 20, Children, obey your parents in everything. And we look at verses 22, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Those terms would be ones that would be really common inside of a Greco-Roman household code. That they would know, I have to obey, I have to submit, I have to obey. However, as we see that this is a, this is a brand new thing because Paul talks to the husbands about what they need to do. So a Christian home ought to be one of humility. Uh, part, the, the second point under there is that as opposed to a traditional home in which the husband gets what he wanted, in the Christian home, the husband provides what is needed. Provides what is needed. The husband doesn't take his power and authority as head of the household and use it to lord over all his, uh, his wife and his kids as if they were his subjects and his, his kingdom. It's the idea of being able to provide what is needed. So we look at verses... Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Well, in the Greco-Roman context, that marriages were often purely based off of um, prearranged marriages. They were based off of maybe economic or um, just good pairings as opposed to love. And so Paul says, he calls them to love your wife, to go above and beyond what is required according to the Greco-Roman rules. And since Christ rules in your heart, that now we are to love your wife. And if you want a further definition of love, we look at Ephesians 5, and you can turn to the parallel passage in which Jesus is, a given, is a given as the example of how husbands ought to love. In fact, Paul says to love your wife as Christ loved the church, who is willing to give himself up for it, to be holy, to be set apart, to wash his wife with the water of the word, to be able to make her blameless. And so wives are called to submit. But husbands are called to lay down their lives, to put wife's needs above her, his own, to be able to wash her with the word, all these different things that is this high calling. So as we are following Christ and how he loved the church, it is a high calling for husbands to love their wives and not to be harsh with them, not to walk in the room at the end of the day and be short and to be, um, uh, to be uh, unkind with words. First um, Peter 3 talks about how to show honor, to, to be soft towards, to honor our wives. And so husbands, are, it's important for us to provide what is needed, that we are able to love our wives. But also when it comes to verse 20, children obey your parents, oh, excuse me, 
um, for this pleases the Lord, excuse me, verse 21, fathers do not embitter your children so they will become discouraged. That sometimes I can catch myself and I recognize that it's easy for me to try to, in my desire to help um, the girls work on something or get better at something or whatever it may be, I can catch myself saying, okay, honey, don't do that. Honey, do this instead. Honey, can you do this? Honey, you might want to try this way. Honey, what about that? And it can be discouraging. And I've seen that happen where, you know, Shaylin or Elise might be having fun and then I say something. I just, I'm a little too corrective in a moment. And even if it's with a good heart, I don't want to embitter them. I don't want them to feel like there's nothing they can do that can please me as their dad. Because if they think that about me, if our kids think that there's nothing they can do to please their earthly fathers, how much more will that impact their view of their heavenly father? And if they feel, if we felt that we can't ever please father figures or our fathers in our lives, then how will we ever realize that we can please God? We'll never feel good enough. And then in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, when it says, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. It's again this idea that husbands provide what is needed. The man provides what is needed. And when it comes to treating um, the slaves in that time, treating them fairly treating them with, with what was right and just to do. Not to abuse them, not to, cause, to beat them, not to harm them, but to care for them in a loving way. So that, uh, as a reminder, that even earthly masters have a master in heaven. And so that brings us to our final point in your notes. In the Christian home, we recognize that the Christian home views Jesus as Lord and Master, not the husband in the Greco-Roman context. The Christian home views Jesus as Lord and Master. He is the head of the household. He is the paterfamilias. He is the one that shapes how everyone in the home interacts with one another. So this idea of him being his Lord, that if you notice when Paul speaks to the wives, the children, and the slaves, there are countless times, well not countless, we can count them together, but there are several times in which he refers specifically that their obedience and their submission is not to the man as the center of the household. Their submission and obedience is to the Lord. We see it, uh, verse 18, submit yourselves to your husbands, or, uh, yeah, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So what does that mean? That means that if a husband is, is, um, beating a wife, you don't submit to that. that. That's not at all what it means. It means as is, as is fitting to the Lord, that as the husband is following God, then the wife can submit and follow along. It doesn't mean that wives can, um, or sorry, wives have to endure just this um, roughshod, everybody um, focus on what the husband does and that's it. It's decided that as is fitting in the Lord, if it's fitting to follow um, the husband because he's following God, Submit yourself to him because you know that he's following the Lord and that you can therefore trust to follow him. But it's this idea of, that's one. So wives, submit yourselves as is fitting to the Lord. We jump down to verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. We go to verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor. Remember earlier, I mentioned how we don't want to have eye service. That's the terminology here, that we just do something whenever people are watching. Because who you are when no one is watching is who you really are. That John Wooden talks about how be more concerned with your character than your reputation because your reputation is what other people think of you. Your character is who you really are. So don't just look for 
um, you know, approval from other people by looking good on the outside and being a whitewashed tomb as the Pharisees were, where they looked good on the outside, but inside were, were bones, inside was death. It just looked nice. So we see again as we continue on, but with sincerity and reverence for the Lord. That's the third time. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. So within these verses, speaking to wives, children, and slaves, six times it's specifically pointing and reminding them that their obedience and submission is to the Lord, that Jesus is Lord of their lives and Lord of their homes, but that also he is the master. And again, slave and master are terms that are... Um, that are tainted by our history, and they're, they're not even just tainted by our history, they're, they're not good terms, um, but we have a specific um, idea and wound about how our uh, history has been um, when it comes to slavery and, and masters and how deplorable that is. But what I want to focus on is that this word slave is the word doulos. It's the word that can be translated as slave in the, in the New Testament. It can also be translated as um, a bond servant. A bond servant would be someone who um, uh, is someone that, well, sorry. A slave is someone that could either be forced into slavery or can say, I have so much debt that I need to uh, work for this family in order to pay off my debt. A bond servant would be someone who um, had been a slave and then has been freed and they have a mark by they would have like a, a all, A-W-L, and all that would be pushed into the ear that would signal that they were free men. But a bond servant was one who, though made free, loved the master so much that would willingly continue to serve under his care and, and work and serve underneath him. So this word master is one that's important because Paul, when he describes himself, he talks about himself as a, a doulos, a slave, a bond servant of Christ which is super important because it points to the fact that he knows that he was a free man, um, that he was a free Roman citizen, that he was highly respected in the Jewish community because he was so highly respected that he was the one that was receiving the coats of all the people that were stoning Stephen in Acts 7 in the beginning of 8. He was highly respected and yet he chose his identity not as a Pharisee or a Hebrew, not as someone who was zealous for the faith, not as someone who was a free Roman citizen, not as someone who was well respected. He chose his identity, how he would introduce himself in many of his epistles as a doulos, as a slave or a bondservant to Christ. Because he realized that his master, Jesus, is so good that he wants to willingly keep serving and doing and obeying the master Jesus in whatever way he calls him to. His, his master is so good that he wants to willingly and continuously follow him as a servant. And so this idea is, um, was revolutionary in this time. For us, it almost feels repressive because it's saying women or wives submit, children obey, slaves, and there's that whole dynamic there that we don't um, embody now. But 
it was may feel repressive now, but the reality of what it was transforming in the time was not repressive, but revolutionary. It was giving wives and children and slaves voices when they never had voices before. It gave them the ability out of their own volition to choose to submit and choose to obey, not because how good their husband was or father or master, but because of how good Jesus is and has been and will continue to be in their lives. It was revolutionary because he, Jesus, is our paterfamilias, not man. He is the one we submit to, not man. He is the one we obey, not man. He is the one whom we serve when no one's watching, not man. He is the one who is Lord and master, not any man. So Paul takes an idea of the traditional home and he flips it on its head with how Christians ought to act. Because if Jesus has made his home in our heart, then there will be a change in our heart towards our home. And the purpose, Rachel Held Evans closes it this way. She says the purpose is to point all parties. So husbands, wives, fathers, children, masters, slaves, the purpose of, these, of the, the new household codes that Paul gives in Peter in 1 Peter 3 is to point all parties to the example of Jesus and his role as the ultimate head of home, the ultimate pater familias. And so how beautiful it is for us to think about as the ultimate head of home, the one who, when we sin, he could so easily just... Um, destroy us for our sins because we can't have a right relationship with God because of our sinfulness. Our own righteousness is as filthy rags. And so if we try to go to Jesus, or excuse me, go to God on our own and God, here are my good deeds. And we try to heap it up and it's, it's not enough. And we try to say, oh, I'm not bad. I don't do these bad things. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. We can try to be as good as we want, but our truly being good has less to do with our trying. And it has all to do with Jesus dying on the cross for us, being raised to new life, and that when we receive his love and invitation to a relationship with him, to confess him as Lord and the master of our lives, to confess him as Savior, and to surrender our hearts to him. And so he could so easily be able to just completely get rid of that, and he could just, because of our sin, cast us aside. But the truth of the matter is, is that instead of having an honor killing or, or beating us into submission, Jesus was beaten so that we could submit. Jesus was killed so that we could receive the honor due him. Jesus took on the burden so that we might be set free. So we're gonna take communion in just a moment. And as you take the bread and as you take the cup, we, we call upon Jesus to be able to remind us that he is Lord, he is master, and he has all authority to do whatever he wants. And what he chose to do with sinful people who have fled from the master, the father's presence, what he chose to do with us wasn't to forget about us, but it was to die for us. We take the bread that reminds us of his body that was battered, broken, bruised, and torn, that he put that upon himself, that he took the beating that was meant for us. And we take the cup that reminds us of his blood that was poured out, recognize that he was killed, so that we might receive honor. So will you pray with me as we get ready to prepare our hearts to take communion together? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you have changed our lives, Jesus, that if we, if you've worked in our home, or and excuse me, made your home 
in our heart, that where that is most evident has to be within our home, that we have to have a heart change towards our home. And so God, I pray for everyone right now that you would help us all to see our family within our current home and our extended family. How is it that we can love them as Christ would love them? How is it that we can show the change that Jesus has had in our lives to those around us? Because the people in our families are the ones who see us at our highest of highs and our lowest of lows. And if they know how much you love us and how much you love them, and it's embodied by how much we love them, then God, that is such a beautiful picture for the gospel. So Father, I pray that as we take the communion now, that we would remember your sacrifice, that we would thank you for taking the beating that was meant for us, that we would thank you for um, being willing to be killed so that we might receive honor. And we thank you that you alone are the rightful master and Lord of our lives, our home, and our world. We love you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please feel free to partake of the bread and the cup as you feel led. close with a final thought. Uh, when I worked at my previous church, I had a pastor I worked with in the worship department, and he shared about how um, as he was um, in another country on a missions trip, he had uh, a fit, someone that was there who was trying to share about Jesus with him, and the man to whom he was trying to share, with whom he was trying to share, um, he said, you know, if you really want me to follow Jesus, let me come live with you in your home for 30 days. And if I see that Jesus has made a change in your life, in your home, and if your home looks different, then I'll be willing to consider following Jesus. Now, my friend Marco, he, that didn't end up happening, but he, that stuck out to him so clearly. And he shared it with me when he came back and talked about how, he's like, think about how crazy that is. Think about how important that is, that if someone were to see my home outside of the one room that you guys get to see, right? If people were to see your home, would that be a home that was, felt like there was tension, that there was lording over, that there was a lack of humility, that it was all about the husband who, nowadays, there's still husbands who say, I want the wife to do this and I want to just be served, but we know that we are not here to be served, but to serve and to give our lives as a ransom for many, as Jesus did. So if people look at our life and say, our home and say, oh, it's just, it's just like any other home, or if they looked at your home and saw how you, we all loved one another, how you loved one another, would they say, something's different? And when they say that, we could say, well, Jesus has made his heart, his home in my heart, so it's changed my heart towards my home. 
So as you, whether you're still sheltering in place and um, staying home, some of you I know are going back to work and things are starting to open up a bit. So as we may leave the home a little bit more frequently in this season, may we never forget how important it is for us to start loving Christ in our hearts and then allow that to change how we love within our home. And then that will change and allow other people to see that Christ can be the Lord and master of their heart and that he would make his home in them. Thank you all so much for coming this week and joining us. Uh, know that you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. Please click the live prayer button or reach out if you need anything. We are here for you, and uh, we're just going to continue to keeping you guys updated about what it looks like for us to come back. We continue to thank you for, for giving and for serving and for um, being involved in things within our church. We're so blessed. I'm so blessed. And I just want to um, continue to just pray a blessing over you that may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you. May he grant you his peace. God bless you all. Thank you so much for coming. Have a great day. We'll see you next Sunday morning.